electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead on The Exchange. The White House announcing details of its now $1.75 trillion social spending and climate bill. It's a mouthful, but we'll tell you what's actually in it, what's not, how it's going to be paid for, and whether it has enough support to pass. And we're talking to CEOs to get their take on the state of the economy, the labor shortage, and inflation. We'll hear from the head of Huntington Bank and Wyndham Hotels on how the travel industry is recovering. And it's a huge day for our earnings exchange. We're looking ahead to Apple and Amazon, both reporting after the bell, as well as Exxon and Chevron, both reporting tomorrow morning. But let's start with a quick check on the markets this hour. Join me for that. Stocks are moving higher. Dow's up 139 points, about four-tenths of a percent. It's actually the laggard today. The broad S&P 500 up two-thirds of one percent. And look at the outperformance in the NASDAQ today. Record intraday highs today for the NASDAQ. I'll do the DOM star for the NASDAQ and for the S&P 500. Now, what's interesting is this is happening for the NASDAQ, even with bond yields on the rise today. Quick check at the 10-year yield. Last I saw, we were right around 1.56%, 1.57 now. So again, not exactly a tailwind, usually more of a headwind for the NASDAQ. But the semis are strong today. Teradyne, NXP, LAM Research, AMAT all leading. The semi-ETFs are also seeing a jump higher. Teradyne is up 11%. The stock of the day is also Apple seeing a jump ahead of its earnings later. It's only about 4% from its all-time highs. Apple and Microsoft, by the way, neck and neck today around the $2.4 trillion market cap mark. Just extraordinary stuff. Microsoft getting a lift, of course, after its earnings earlier this week. And Ford is on pace for its highest close in seven years. The company raised its guidance despite the ongoing chip shortage. Shares are up 9%. And on the flip side, Northrop Grumman, among the worst performers in the S&P. Despite an earnings beat, they noted labor-related and supply chain challenges. It's been a tough slog for some of these major defense names lately. NOC is down 7%. And we'll end with some nice moves in the crypto space. Bitcoin and Ethereum are both on the move today. And there's the president. President Biden unveiling the framework for his highly anticipated social and climate spending bill. After months of negotiations between factions in the Democratic Party, Elon Moy joins us now with everything we need to know. Elon? Well, Kelly, that framework does include some what he's calling historic investments in things like child care subsidies and extension of the child tax credit, as well as over $500 billion for climate provisions. It also includes ways to pay for that. They're saying it's fully offset, um, and that includes a new corporate minimum tax, a new surtax on millionaires, um, as well as a, a potentially a way to reform the international tax code. But it's unclear if this is going to be enough for progressives. They just got out of a meeting in which they said that they do have the votes to sink a vote on an infrastructure bill because they want an ironclad assurance that this broader package can actually pass. And as of now, the president's framework does not seem to be enough. One lawmaker said that she felt bamboozled by this. Another said, hell no, she's not voting for infrastructure legislation. And the head of the Progressive Caucus said that the president's agreement is loose. He said he's confident he can get the votes. It wasn't, I think, 
It wasn't clear whether the two senators have committed to vote for it. Um, so, you know, look, I think it's a bit of a leap of faith um, in the president. Now, of course, the two senators she's talking about are Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. He has punted responsibility back to the House and said that he's been negotiating in good faith, but did not say he'd vote for that broader package. Senator Sinema issued this statement, quote, we have made significant progress on the proposed budget reconciliation package. I look forward to getting this done. That's not a yes, but it's not a no. So will the House vote today on an infrastructure bill, knowing that progressives do not get behind it at this point. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi told her caucus that is the plan, but she will speak to reporters in just about an hour. So we'll keep you posted with what we learn. Kelly. And Elon, I'm looking for the headline now, but remind me, where do Republicans stand when it comes to uh, any support they might offer for passing the infrastructure bill? Yeah, so right now, the Republican support is not something that Democrats are counting on. They want to be able to pass this with a majority of their own caucus. It is possible you could see uh, maybe about a dozen or so Republicans get on board, but that's only after Democrats prove that they can do this on their own. They don't want to be the ones who uh, sort of come to save the day. One final question on this topic. You mentioned the other day that October 31 is a funding deadline for uh, the highway program. If the infrastructure bill is not passed by then, do they come up with that money elsewhere? Does it sort of complicate efforts by removing a deadline to get infrastructure passed? Yeah, so the October 31st deadline for highway funding is real. It is artificial for passing the infrastructure bill. Certainly the House could do another short-term extension of highway funding, not the way that State Departments of Transportation really want to work, but certainly it is possible to keep those funds flowing. Uh, But really, Democrats are trying to create urgency around this vote um, and get their caucus to make some tough decisions. All right, Elon, for all your reporting, thank you. Elon Moy on Capitol Hill today. For more on the fate of the spending and infrastructure bills, which have caused some big moves already in sectors like solar. I'm joined by Libby Cantrell. She's head of public policy at PIMCO. And Dan Clifton is head of policy research at Strategus Securities. Great to have you both here. Libby, I'll start with you, big picture. Uh, What do you expect to happen for the next couple of days here? Yeah, I mean, um, well, look, we we have we're now in the seventh month of the negotiation of the of the Build Back Better agenda. I don't think we are quite the final word here. I think we're more kind of in the seventh or eighth inning. Um, But we do have a good sense for what the final legislation probably looks like. I think there will be likely some tweaks. Um, The salt deduction, for instance, that's a a big priority for a lot of Democrats in the House, for instance, Uh, that will likely uh, be be revised. So so I think that we are very close to the finish line, but not not quite there yet. So the, the next couple of days, I think we should expect some more twists and turns Uh, We may get a vote on this bipartisan infrastructure deal. Clearly, that's Speaker Pelosi's intention. Um, But, you know, if we don't, if it's not if it's not today, if it's not this week, I don't think we should lose the forest for the trees here. The bottom line is that both of these bills will very likely pass by the end of the year. We've been saying this for a while to our clients. Failure is just just not an option. So I think bottom line, expect more twists and turns over the next couple of days. But by the end of the year, both of these you know, pieces of legislation are very likely to be signed into law. You know, Dan, I sort of joked about this off the top, but it's hard bill to even discuss because of the fluidity in, in terms of what's in it. So I think based on listening to the president earlier, we can say it's a it's a preschool funding bill. It's a 
child uh, care funding bill. It's uh, an elder care in some ways funding bill. I mean, it, it's a lot of things. And, you know, there's climate in there. There's incentive, you know, and we've seen the solar stocks are on the move big time. I guess maybe I'll just ask you the point, the question from investors' point of view. What yeah. are the investing implications here? Yeah, that's the right way to do it. And Kelly, we put it into broad groups of categories. So we have more money for shoring up the social safety net. We have a massive investment in clean energy. This would be the biggest standalone energy bill I've ever worked on if it was just an energy bill. Hmm. And we have a very significant healthcare portion to this bill as well. And so what you see is more ACA subsidies for the Affordable Care Act, more Medicaid expansion. We see no drug pricing changes in this bill. That right. may change uh, overall. Um, but you're seeing massive investments on the spending side. And then you got to think about the tax side, right? No corporate tax increase, some higher taxes on multinationals, which came in a little bit less than expected. So domestic companies are probably going to benefit more than U.S. multinationals based on that. And then when you look at you know capital gains, you're going to get a capital gains tax increase for anybody over 10 million. But below that, you're starting to see the tax expectations come down somewhat. And the key here, Kelly, is that it was like whiplash last week. Are we doing a wealth tax, unrealized <laughs> capital gains tax? It just kept going back and forth. Those range of outcomes are now shrinking. There will be final changes on the margin. Everybody's at the table. This may even fail one time before it succeeds. But I think this morning, investors now have a good range of what those potential outcomes are, and it makes it easier to identify who the winners and losers are going to be in this bill. So, Dan, do you think, you know, when we, you mentioned it's, it could be the biggest standalone energy bill you've ever seen, I believe like something $555 billion is the number, uh, which yeah. is extraordinary. And we've seen the solar stocks up 20% in the past month. So would you argue that a lot of this is already priced in? Yeah, I would say some sectors have priced in, but you have to understand that solar is going up because energy prices are going up. So yeah. there's also fundamental factors that are impacting this. This is a historic investment in solar, wind, electric vehicles, energy storage, biofuels. And the Democrats are making it very clear this is a top priority. They want to give the president the ability to go to the climate change summit in Glasgow next week and say that he's getting emissions under control. So they really had to bump this up on the subsidy side. They didn't really do much on the fossil fuel side, but that's why they're making a historic investment. And that's the one issue that there's really no disagreements on, unlike some of the other parts of the bill, as, as Libby mentioned earlier. And Libby, you mentioned salt. Could this end up being a net tax cut for wealthier Americans? Well, it, it looked like it, it could be earlier this week. We'll really have to, we'll see what the sort of the final details are. Um, you know, there has been you know, some push to to delay uh, the the salt uh, for two years that would likely give a lot of folks at the upper income levels a, a tax cut at least temporarily. But again, I, I don't think we'll, well, we haven't seen the final form here. I, obviously, salt hasn't even been involved. It wasn't even included in the president's framework as of this morning. We do think that there will be something. It, it sounds like maybe uh, a cap might be lifted. Uh, you know, the $10,000 cap might be lifted to something like thirty dollars or $40,000. But as, as Dan said, all of this is being negotiated in real time. And again, I would just sort of caveat that we really are just in the eight, seventh or eighth inning. So we're close to the end of the game here, but we're not quite there yet. All right. Great stuff, guys. Thank you both very much for joining me today. It's such a complex topic, but you're used to it uh, down there in D.C. Libby Cantrell and Dan Clifton, we greatly appreciate it.
Investors do seem to be cheering the spending bill. Uh, bond rates, though, have been dropping lately. Does that tell us a little bit different story? And which one is the real reason the Nasdaq is at intraday highs and all-time highs these days? Joining me now is Abe Deshpande. He's the chief investment officer at Centerstone. Abe, it's good to have you. Just a quick top-level thought here. Um, you know, we just got a disappointing GDP number. There's obviously, I mean, nominally, I think GDP grew 9%, but like 7% of that was prices. So what do you think is happening with the economy over the next six months or so? Uh, well, to me, it seems clear things are slowing down. Um, prices have gone up, real incomes have not. So it's the uh, inflation is actually signaling to uh, people to pull back. Um, and so you're, you've got this kind of rush of orders. Um, there's all this talk about the uh, backups of the ports and it's all true, uh, but you're starting to see those numbers uh, already start to peak. It could take some time to kind of even out itself, but the forward-looking numbers seem um, rather weak uh, for, for most economies around the world. And I think that's led by consumers pulling back because prices have gone up. So again, it's that backdrop. Tell me why you're betting on undervalued and more interestingly as well, sort of what we might call old economy companies. Well, I mean, if you're anything like me, you're kind of tired of listening to all this stuff, macro stuff. And uh, and Centerstone, we've always been bottom up in nature. So we kind of look at stocks uh, security by security. And what I like about the things we're finding these days is that they don't have any, there's no bearing to uh, you know what goes on in Washington or inflation or anything. I mean, on the margin, these things, of course, affect these companies. But I like businesses um, that we're finding that where there's a lot of self-help. There's catalysts, there's changes. Um, and most importantly, the market, because it's not a high growth tech stock or you know something popular, the market just ignores them. Like companies like Perigo and CDK, which we own, for instance, both undergoing you know, a great deal of transformation, focusing on the core business with, uh, you know, with good management teams, cash flow generative, and in businesses or in segments which they either dominate or have very large market share. I can see owning something like that yeah. in the long duration for, for quite some time. It's very reasonable prices today. And you also like O'Reilly Automotive and Target. Those have been better performers this year. But I think you make an interesting point here is where, uh, you know, I was talking a moment ago about how both Apple and Microsoft are around $2.4 trillion stocks. And you're saying, <laughs> you know, these growth rates are unsustainable. Uh, maybe you could illustrate that based on how quickly they've grown. If we were to extend that into the future, what are we talking about? Yeah, I mean, I, I like to use these models. Uh, I did it the same thing 20 years ago in the tech bubble. And like, just to see, okay, if, if, the, if the past holds true for the next 10 years, what happens? And it's interesting, the top five names in the United States, we all know they're very huge. Um, already, the market cap is equal to about half of the US GDP. But if this current trends continue as far as market appreciation, these five stocks will be equal to the world's GDP. I mean, something has to give. I, I, I just don't believe that the entire world's value will be a, a comprised of advertising and you know, data warehouse collection or whatever. So, um, you know, that something's got to give, and I, I, I'm guessing it's going to be the growth rate. The people often say, well, tech stocks, they're long-duration franchises, and they're most affected by interest rates. But actually, the other side of the coin is, is growth rates. Once those growth assumptions take a hit, the present value, you know, shrinks dramatically. So, and I'm not making a prediction this is going to be tomorrow or what have you, but um, right. I'm, I, I am saying that, you know, it, on balance, if, would I rather take a gamble on those growth rates persisting or take a gamble on businesses that are already underweight changes where the values are not apparent and the stocks don't reflect those values? I'd clearly take the latter, and that's what we're doing. Sometimes. Well, and we, you know, we will leave it here today, but the next time we have you on for real or Reddit, Abe, I want you to do Hertz, okay? <laughs>
<laughs> Absolutely. That has been an incredible story with more news today on their Crazy. growing Tesla fleet. Abe Deshpande, thanks for joining me and for your thoughts on how to play this market. He is the CIO at Centerstone Investors. Still ahead, Mark Zuckerberg's keynote address at Facebook's developer conference is underway. We'll bring you all the headlines and their new announcements. Plus, shares of Wyndham Hotels are hitting an all-time high today after an earnings beep. They're now up nearly fourfold from the pandemic low, and they're outperforming some of their pre-pandemic metrics. The CEO of Wyndham joins me coming up. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Rider's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. We've got all the news from the Facebook's Developers Conference. Let's get to Julia Borson with the headlines. Julia, do we have a name change yet? We do not have a name change yet, but Mark Zuckerberg, who's been presenting his vision for the metaverse in this virtual world, he's talked a lot about Horizon. That's what they're calling Facebook's metaverse platform. And if I had to bet, Kelly, I would say that if they were to rename the company today, which we are thinking it will, they will, that Horizon would be the name. So right now he's trying to give, Zuckerberg is trying to give people a look at the metaverse, saying it's like a hybrid version of online social experiences, but that this new virtual world will replace mobile devices. Now, Zuckerberg just now is announcing the expansion of Facebook's metaverse, its Horizon platform, into three new areas. One, they're looking to build out social interactions on VR, so they're introducing Horizon Home. This is a virtual space where people will be able to interact with their friends as embodied by their avatars. They'll also be able to watch videos, play games together. They also announced that messenger calling is going to be coming to VR to this VR world later this year. Now, there are two other key areas. One is fitness. They're gonna have new fitness offerings on Oculus and new accessories for that Quest headset to make it work better when you're doing exercise. Also moving into work, introducing work accounts for Quest VR devices and the ability to bring services like Slack and Dropbox into this horizon for work world um, into VR as 2D panels. So they're also gonna um, be talking today about how they're working towards what they call fully featured AR glasses. This would be really interactive augmented reality glasses. The next generation of those Ray-Bans that they launched uh, just about a month ago to collect photos and videos, but not actually be able to see things in AR and VR. So as you see this right now, this is video um, that Zuckerberg is showing to try to give people a sense of what being in this VR world, this, this interactive metaverse will be like, Kelly. I enjoy watching this video. It's fascinating to try and understand what they are building with this $10 billion investment. They're talking about, quick question, do you have to wear some sort of spectacles in order to participate in act, uh, this and be involved well, in it. 
Well, so there are different versions of this, Kelly. So theoretically, you could make an an avatar of yourself and you could join um, a virtual space with your friends and be doing that through um, through like a mobile platform. But I think ultimately they want or expect people to be wearing headsets and really immersed in this experience. But I do think in the interim, before they actually get there, they're probably gonna be introducing these avatars and trying to get people to engage in this new way. Um, without having the AR and VR headsets. But of course, Kelly, there's this big question of like, when are these AR and VR headsets gonna come to the mainstream? Sure. We've talked about this a lot on your show. I've demoed many of these headsets over the years <laughs> and they're cool, they're interesting, but not the kind of thing that's fully mainstream yet. Right, that people are really gonna be excited about putting on, that's for sure. Julia, thanks for now, we'll check back in soon. Let's turn to Casey Newton now. He's Platformers editor and a CNBC contributor. Casey, it's great to have you here. Thoughts so far? Yeah, so I think uh, this is a really pivotal moment for the company, right? Think about everything that has been going on outside of Facebook Connect. We have the whistleblower revelations, all these publications publishing their findings from these leaked Facebook papers. And now here comes Mark Zuckerberg saying, I want to turn the page. So right now, my eyes are what are the changes to the name going to be? But in the meantime, I have to say this has been a pretty impressive demo reel for the future of virtual reality. Yeah, explain to everybody what you're looking for when you watch metaverse demos and what are important for investors to have in mind when they're watching this as well. Yeah, so when I'm looking at these demos, I'm trying to figure out what is the thing that a normal person is going to see and say, oh, I need to get myself a VR headset right away. And I think for that reason, Facebook has been focusing on gaming, right? Um, you know, many of us grew up buying video game consoles, and in a lot of ways, an Oculus Quest just looks like the next generation of that. Mm -hmm. But you're also seeing today Facebook come in and say, hey, this is a work tool as well. Uh, they're introducing all sorts of new third-party integrations with services that that we all use at the office, like Slack and Dropbox, to maybe give that IT manager a reason to go ahead and put in an order for some Oculus headsets as well. So Facebook is trying to expand the surfaces on which somebody might say, hey, it's time to go ahead and get that headset. So for those who are doing work from home and you know they have eye burnout and Zoom fatigue, I mean, does this represent freedom from that or servitude to it? I mean, it sure feels like servitude to me, right? This is not a, a presentation about getting uh, out, outside and enjoying the great outdoors, right? This is about <laughs> a world in which even more of our lives are going to be mediated by screens, and we might have something like this slapped on our foreheads for many hours a day. So I do think it remains to be seen how much appetite people have for remaining in the metaverse for quite that uh, much of their day. Final comment, $10 billion investment. Does this represent you know, kind of a worthy, a worthy way for the company to launch into the metaverse that is going to be necessary so that they're not left behind by this next iteration of technology? Or does it represent a $10 billion PR effort to get us to talk about something else? <laughs> well, maybe it's a little bit of both, but I mean, look, what we have read in the Facebook uh, papers suggests that Facebook does have an existential risk. They're having trouble holding on to their current generation of users. The next generation of users are not gravitating toward their platform. And think of all the problems that Facebook has been having with Apple in particular as it tries to build out what, what it wants to build out without owning the platform. So Mark Zuckerberg is going all in on owning his own platform and on owning the next generation of technology. And I'm sure by the time all is said and done, that $10 billion is going to look like chump change. Yeah, well, it, for a company like Facebook, you're probably right no matter what. Casey, really great to have you on today. Thank you, sir.
Casey Newton joining us as Facebook Developers Conference continues. We'll keep you posted if they do officially change the name. In the meantime, Huntington Bank is outperforming its benchmark regional banking ETF, the ticker KRE, since closing a multi-billion dollar acquisition in June. We talked to the CEO next about their strategy and where he sees the economy and inflation going from here. We're also back with another edition of Earnings Exchange, looking ahead at some of the biggest names reporting today. It's a pair of trillion dollar tech stocks and two oil and gas giants. We're back in a moment. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back. Shares of Columbus-based Huntington Bank are up 25% this year, giving up their earlier gains today despite the company reporting better-than-expected earnings and revenue. Their 32% jump in revenue last quarter due in part to their acquisition of another regional bank, TCF, which closed in June. In fact, bank mergers have been on the rise. We've had $50 billion worth of deals so far this year, and investors are generally applauding them. But how much will heft help regional banks compete as online access becomes more important than zip codes? Joining me now in a first on CNBC interview is Steve Steinauer. He is the chairman, president, and CEO of Huntington Bank Shares. It's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you, Kelly. Nice to meet you. Great to be with you. You have been in charge for over a decade, and it sounds like this isn't the last of your sort of deal-making ambitions. Is that about right? Well, our focus now is on driving the core performance. We've just completed the systems conversions, and we have a great group of new colleagues who have joined us from TCF. We're in new markets. We have new capabilities. So it's driving the core. And you're, again, I think, you know, nine or so states uh, all across the Midwest. So you maybe can give us a real good perspective of what's happening in terms of inflation, uh, labor shortages. How would you describe the economy as we look to turn uh, from what was pretty lousy quarter last quarter? Well, we're clearly in a restrained recovery because of labor and supply chain constraints. Uh, We're seeing inflation now very significantly on the labor front, particularly the low-end wage scales. Uh, Most of our customers, almost all of them, comment about labor shortages and inability to hire. Our job openings in, like, the state of Ohio, and this is generally true of the Midwest, exceed the unemployment levels. So so we're we're in a catch-22 here. We've got momentum for recovery. We've got great underlying fundamentals. And yet we're constrained on a supply chain and especially labor. And would you say that in a way you have more cash than, than you can loan out? I think the system does. We certainly do. We'd love to, to lend another $8, $10 billion of loans. The demand is, uh, so far the money supply growth has outstripped uh, demand. And part of that's, I, I believe, a function of the supply chain constraints. You just can't get... Vehicles produced by inadequate numbers by the OEMs, that backs up in terms of supply chain. But it's not just an auto industry issue. This is being felt in significant ways across uh, many businesses. Absolutely. So I also wonder, you know, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but more and more you are going to have to compete with online startups who offer niche services and are tailored to different sectors of the economy and that sort of thing. How do you see Huntington continuing to evolve to meet the changing demands? Well, we have a very large customer base. We just added a million and a half customers from TCF. We've got a great brand. We've been around for 160, nearly 160 years. 
We've got deep multi-generational relationships as a consequence of that. And we're geographically dense in our markets, so we have scale in the markets we're in. So with the existing customers and then with the investments we're making to compete directly with fintechs, uh, uh, we're, we're poised to, uh, to grow and to, to effectively compete, although I think they're going to make us better and the industry better. Yeah, no, that's well said. And, uh, you know, if any of our viewers need a loan, they know where to go now. Steve, thanks for joining us. Thank you. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Great to be with you. Steve Steinauer is the CEO, Chairman, and President of Huntington Bank Shares. Still ahead, the NASDAQ hitting a record intraday high as the major averages have their best day in two weeks. We'll dig into the movers, including this retailer, soaring 20% on blowout earnings today. We'll tell you the name next. Welcome back, everybody. Here's a check on markets. We're about 60 points off session highs on the Dow. It's up 165 or half a percent. S&P's up three quarters of a percent. NASDAQ up almost 1.2 percent. And here are some of the individual movers we're watching. Overstock.com is spiking and on pace for its best day since January. It's up almost 25 percent. It's now doubled this year. It beat earnings estimates and doubled revenue from the same period two years ago not last year. CEO Jonathan Johnson, who we spoke to just the other day on this show, was upbeat on the earnings calls, you might imagine, saying the company gained about 50 basis points in market share from 2020 and that its vast partner network reduces single source supply chain risks. Again, just a tremendous year and now 770 percent two-year performance for Overstock. Meanwhile, chipmaker Global Foundries is making its public debut today after pricing at $47 a share. Values the company around $25 billion, currently down about 3% right now, around 45 Remember, earlier this summer, Intel was reportedly in talks to buy this chip maker for $30 billion as part of CEO Pat Gelsinger's push to become a chip manufacturer for others. That didn't come together. GFS it now hits the public markets. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. Oklahoma is asking the Supreme Court to vacate a stay of execution for death row inmate John Grant. An appeals court approved the stay yesterday, hours before Grant was scheduled to be executed. Grant's attorneys say that they had an agreement with Oklahoma's former attorney general that executions would be delayed until a trial took place over the legality of the state's new method of execution. Just one in three Americans approve of how President Biden and Democrats are handling their key spending bill. That's according to a new poll from the Associated Press. But Republicans are doing even worse. Fewer than one in five Americans approve of how the GOP is handling the negotiations. And on the news tonight, what will it take to convince Democratic lawmakers to support the social spending investments? That's tonight at 7 Eastern. And in southern Mexico, a migrant caravan is growing as it slowly moves toward the U.S. border. Leaders of the group estimate that there are now 4,000 people walking north, and more than a quarter of them are children. This is the largest group headed towards the U.S. since the pandemic began. Kelly, you're now upstate. I'll send it back to you. Wow. Uh, Rahel, thank you very much, Rahel Solomon. Coming up, some key big tech names are reporting after the bell. Will Apple iPhone it in? The street expects Amazon's revenue to soar into the clouds. And will soaring oil prices power Exxon and Chevron's quarters? It's all coming up in Earnings Exchange right after this. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for another edition of Earnings Exchange, where we give you the action, the story, and the trade on three key earnings reports on deck. Today's lineup, Apple, Amazon, and oil giants Exxon and Chevron. Let's kick things off with Apple. Reporting after the bell, the street expecting revenues around $84 billion, earnings of $1.24 a share. Investors will be listening for iPhone production cuts due to chip shortages as holiday sales expectations uh, after unveiling new iPhones, AirPods, and MacBooks have all been 
pretty high. Shares lagging the broader market. They're up about 15% this year. Joining me now is Josh Lipton, along with Ariel Investments Vice Chair Charlie Bobrinskoy. Great to have you guys both here. Josh, what are you watching? So I think investors, Kelly, as always, are going to make a beeline for that iPhone revenue number. Street's looking for $41.5 billion. I think within that, investors would like to get more uh, insight into, man, into the demand for those new iPhone 13 models, also supply, given the ongoing chip shortage. And then if we're not going to get formal guidance today, I think the street at least wants detailed color and commentary about that all-important December quarter, Kelly. And Charlie, I can't imagine you're filling your boots with Apple here. No, today's the day I got to take my quarterly whipping for not owning Apple. Um, you've been nice enough to give us credit for the things we've gotten right, but we've clearly gotten this one wrong. Obviously, a great company. It will be amazing if they can uh, dodge the chip shortage, which so many other companies can't. I will just have to bow down to them. I think that's the big risk here. The chip shortages are around the world. Is Apple going to be the one company that can dodge it? I don't think so, but I've been wrong before. Josh, what are the suppliers, the chip makers themselves, hinting at? up to now. You know, Apple's supply chain, Kelly, frankly, is just so big in both size and scale and scope. It's really hard, I think, to read the tea leaves there. Apple itself, remember, has cautioned uh, that the chip shortage is a challenge. We're waiting to see how it impacted. Also, whether Apple, given that size and scale and given the fact this company sells so many products, high margin products, is it able to navigate that challenge maybe relatively better than some peers? We're going to soon find out. And we'll all be watching the market caps, Apple and Microsoft neck and neck around that $2.4 trillion mark. Uh, today. All right, Josh, thank you. We appreciate it. Let's turn to Amazon, where the street's expecting more than $111 billion in sales and earnings of about $9 a share. The juggernaut actually missed revenue estimates last quarter. Supply chain and labor woes probably going to weigh on results. Shares have had a hard time gaining steam. They're up just 6% this year. Deirdre Bosa here with more Deirdre. I know a lot of people say, well, okay, but they had a monster 2020. But, you know, the year's dragging on and they're still moving sideways. Yeah, it's true. They are the underperforming Fang or mega cap name this year. I think that's what you're referring to. And I think key will be the forecast, that revenue forecast for the quarter ahead, which is that all important holiday quarter, usually Amazon's biggest. Can they regain some of that momentum that they saw from last year? But really, Amazon is such a fascinating company because it touches on so many different themes. Of course, e-commerce is its core, but cloud computing after getting a beat from Microsoft and a bit of a miss from Alphabet. There's also advertising, right? This is one of the fastest growing parts of Amazon's business. And did it benefit or was it hurt by the Apple privacy changes? We've asked that of so many different companies. We saw Google benefit. Amazon, bit of a wild card, especially given some of the supply chain issues um, that even it is facing that could affect advertising and, of course, its core of e-commerce. Kelly, you also mentioned those costs. Uh, we've seen much more fiscal discipline from Amazon over the last few years, but we know costs have been ramping up from the labor shortage to building out its fulfillment and making a big bet on grocery as well. There's also marketing costs. So it'll be interesting to see how they're balancing that. Oh, for sure. No, that's a great point. And Charlie, I think that if you could give us the context, we look at these PEs, they are still high. And I think, you know, we're talking to Abe Deshpande about it at the top of the show. You can't extrapolate the growth rates they've experienced forever or they would, you know, eat up the entire economy. So what kind of P.E. compression do you think we could witness here for some of these major and majorly successful companies over the next decade? I do point to the Microsoft uh, story. In 1999, Microsoft was trading for about this same multiple of about 60 times earnings. And over the next 15 years, they tripled EPS from 85 cents to 270. But in 2014, Microsoft stock was below where it was in 1999. And that's just because it started off at an unsustainable PE of 60. So 
that's, I think Amazon's a wonderful, wonderful company, but as you say, it can't grow at this rate forever. And I don't think it's a good stock. It's a wonderful company. It's just not a good stock at these levels. And Charlie, before we turn to energy on the kind of consumer or retail front, if you want to call it that, where would you be recommending people look? Yeah, the numbers today were a little bit uh, tough in terms of consumer spending, obviously. Um, and so I think the consumer is in great shape with a lot of cash in their pockets. Um, services names, uh, uh, entertainment names, travel names, I think are going to be fine. I think there's some restaurant names that are going to be fine. Um, but the, the consumer right now can't get the things that he or she wants. The, the shelves are not bare, but the shelves are not stocked the way that they would like. And so this is going to be a tougher quarter for consumer than maybe we've had in the last year and a half. And maybe for consumer goods especially. All right, interesting. We'll leave it there. Deirdre, thank you. Our Deirdre Bosa watching Amazon today. Let's turn to Exxon and Chevron, which report before tomorrow's opening bell. Both companies are getting a boost this year with crude on the rise, outperforming the major averages, and Exxon announcing it's raising its dividend by a penny to 88 cents a share. That's its first dividend hike in more than two years. Pippa Stevens here, Pippa, with some key numbers to watch, and everybody seems to be anticipating cash gushers, even though Shell just disappointed. Yeah, it's really all about shareholder returns and capital spending plans looking forward. The two companies and the industry broadly, obviously in a much better place than they were last year. Oil is now at a seven-year high, nat gas and chemical prices are also up. And Wall Street analysts are expecting both Exxon and Chevron to report a more than 60% jump in revenue compared to the same quarter last year. And we've already got some indications that last quarter was a good one. Exxon said in September that higher gas and oil prices could boost earnings by as much as $1.5 billion. They announced that dividend hike the first time since April of 2019. But of course, dividends, buybacks, not the only uses for this newfound cash pile. And another key thing is whether or not they're planning on ramping up production. Shareholders have demanded discipline, but with energy prices high and this global power crunch that we're seeing unfold, Commentary around whether or not they plan to open the taps will definitely be top of mind. Yeah. And, Charlie, people might expect you to be a fan of these. You know, they say, ah, he hates the new economy. He likes the old one. Why don't you like Exxon and Chevron necessarily here? I think they're just too diversified into the upstream model is great right now. They're going to make a lot of money in oil and gas net, uh, exploration. But the downstream model, the refining, the chemicals, that frankly, that diversification has just not worked, and we think it's a busted model. We prefer the, the pure play exploration companies. I happen to like Apache trading for eight times earnings. These companies, by the way, have big dividend yields. That's always scary when people are in a low interest rate environment are buying the stocks because of the dividend yield. They're yeah. paying out more than half of their earnings in dividends, and that is not a good uh, sign about the future. You just said something so important, Charlie. Can, can I just ask you to dwell on it for a second? We've seen the E&P companies really outperform Exxon and Chevron. The whole point of their diversified business models was to make them a better bet in times like this, and certainly for what's coming. Why do you call it a busted business model? Because there just aren't the synergies that this model was supposed to produce. If you were in the refining business and you were Exxon or Chevron, it was supposed to give you a huge advantage because you had the supply. Well, there's plenty of supply. There, there just aren't the synergies that um, the business model brought. And frankly, we don't need the diversification. The other part of this model is yeah. that it, it reduces the swings. I, as an investor, can produce my own diversification. I want somebody to be an expert at something, not try to be all things to all people. These models 
And frankly, they've got a target on their back. The big people are the ones getting called in in front of the Senate. Yes. And the little people like Apache don't have those same pressures. Yeah, and as you're referring to that hearing on Capitol Hill, even today, probably a glimpse of more to come. Really, really interesting. Before we leave this, though, Pippa, can you also mention, I mean, we talked about the outperformance of solar stocks. There's another, is it a storage, an energy storage IPO today that's doing pretty well? Yeah, that's correct. And it's a good day if you are a clean energy company to go public with Biden outlining that new framework. Uh, it's called Fluence Energy. It focuses on grid scale battery storage, a joint venture between AES and Siemens. And interestingly, they chose to go for the traditional IPL route rather than the SPAC model, which has been very popular for clean energy companies. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on that stock surging right now. Yep. Kelly? Up 20% Fluence Energy, uh, like you said, pretty well-timed for maybe the biggest you know, green energy announcement we've had in a while. Charlie and Pippa, Pippa thank you very much. Pippa Stevens covering all of this for us. And Charlie, really, really great to have your perspective today. Thank you so much. Charlie Babrinskoy of Ariel. Up next, the stock Jim Cramer says could benefit from inflation. And remember, you can catch the show anytime, anywhere by listening to and following the Exchange podcast. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. Look at MasterCard today beating on the top and bottom lines with revenue up nearly 30 percent from last year. Shares are still down one percent, though, better, though, than the reaction to Visa yesterday. According to Jim Cramer's latest Investing Club newsletter, the current inflationary environment could be a boon to MasterCard. He'll explain why you can get access to Jim's full analysis and exclusive content by pointing your phone's camera at that QR code on the screen. To sign up for his investing club, you can also go to cnbc.com slash investing club. Up next, shares of Wyndham Hotels and Resorts are higher after the company reported a stronger than expected third quarter and hiked its guidance. We're going to talk to the CEO about the return of travel. That's next. Welcome back, everybody. Shares of Wyndham Hotels and Resorts are up nearly 4% today after they posted an earnings beat and raised guidance for the rest of the year. The stock is up more than 80% since January. They're recording their highest free cash flow quarter ever, saying a strong rebound in leisure travel due to the demand has led to the highest Thursday and Sunday night occupancy rates the company has ever seen. Joining me now in a first on CNBC interview, Jeff Bellotti is president and CEO of Wyndham Hotels and Resorts. It is great to have you. So you're telling me things are stronger now than pre-pandemic? Much stronger, Kelly, and, and thanks for having us. I'm, I'm here at the Wyndham in Boston at the Massachusetts General Hospital, where uh, this this room behind me is, is is full. The hotel is sold out tonight through, uh, through, the, through the rest of the weekend. It, it's great to see business and group travel back, but uh, to your question, absolutely stronger than before the pandemic. You mentioned Thursday nights, uh, Sunday nights, the two fastest growing nights to 2019, which was a record year. Uh, we saw economy rev par in the in the third quarter, 14% up, not, not to last year, but to 2019. And that demand has continued continued throughout the fall. It's so incredible. Let me scratch my head a little bit for a second because I'm, you know, I'm thinking about the airlines, which are still obviously trying to get back to peak levels. The stocks have not performed well, especially lately. And yet your hotels are as fuller, fuller than they've ever been. How is it that you guys are sort of uniquely benefiting from the landscape right now? Well, I, I think it is the leisure travel demand here in the United States, Kelly. I mean, this work from home could be work from hotel, work from anywhere, is uh, is really creating that weekend demand. Uh, but the demand remains throughout the week. I mean, the intent to travel, the intent to get in your car and drive someplace and, and get out of your attic, get out of your basement uh, with your family and your friends is, is, is spectacular. Uh, it's off the charts. It's unprecedented. 
And uh, I think we're going to continue to see that into the fall. I mean, we were really excited about the launch of our 22nd brand dedicated to the all-inclusive space. All-inclusive travel is, wow. is growing. We're seeing international uh, airlift continue to increase to, to de destinations like Mexico, where we have a new Wyndham Ultra Cancun and a new Wyndham Ultra Playa del Carmen. People are looking to get away uh, and have a have a safe and a, and a very flexible and easy vacation. And, and, and that's what we're seeing. You've mentioned some of the standouts that you've seen. Can you walk us through the places that might be lagging a little bit, whether it's in the U.S. or globally? Just a sense of, of kind of the full spectrum from first to rebound strongest to those who uh, we're still looking for the catch up to take place if it's going to. First to rebound was economy, domestic, mid-scale, domestic, drive to domestic. I mean, Certainly what is still lagging is what we're seeing behind us, uh, the group meeting destinations. Again, great to see. Uh, so many of us have been advocating. U.S. Travel has been doing a great job with the administration getting that to open up. And we're going to see that come November 8th with those inbound flights uh, restarting. Um, but it's really been cities like the city I'm in or San Francisco that are now just beginning uh, to pick up. It's those group meeting urban destinations that have been lagging um, the broader. We're, we're the world's largest hotel franchising company with leading economy drive-to brands like Days In, Super 8, La Quinta. Mm. That was what came back uh, faster uh, than, than, than anywhere else. And it's now these group meeting destination hotels like the one I'm in that are beginning to pick up. So as you mentioned, you think that this, you know, that there, and we've heard this from the CEOs, that there's going to be massive inbound travel demand into the U.S. in a couple of weeks. We think there will be um, certainly increasing demand into the United States of America. I mean, U.S. travel has been doing a phenomenal job um, promoting that. I, th I think one of the things that we're all advocating for, uh, so many of us have been on the on the phone with uh, with congressmen. Uh, last week we were on with Senator Rosen and Cinema and Moore and Manchin advocating for one of the things we need to see pick up is a visa application. We need emergency funding for those visas yeah. to be processed. Yes, there is going to be an influx and an increase in, uh, in, in both business travel and leisure demand into uh, cities like Boston, cities like New York, cities like San Francisco in the, in the weeks and months ahead, which right. is great news for the travel industry. Jeff Bellotti, thank you for the granular look into your operations there. As we, uh, again, note the rebound your shares have had and the travel demand has experienced more broadly. We appreciate it. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.